I invite you to take out your Bible and turn to the book of Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 11 and verse 37. We're going to look at a, a few people who did not consider their own souls. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. Before we look at our text, would you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we come before your word, and, and after the first uh, night of retreat, um, physical fatigue can take over, and we ask that you would awaken us and enliven us, and that you would glorify uh, yourself in the preaching of your word, that you, by the Spirit, uh, might recenter each of us around you, that you would open our eyes to see you with clarity that you would open our eyes to see ourselves with clarity as well and maybe even uncover some things we've become blind to. And would you show us over and over the love and grace and mercy and, and goodness of Jesus Christ. In whose name we ask these things, amen. Uh, we have in our text this morning a, a confrontation and a clash between the religious leadership of the day who had really been known for their strict lifestyles of trying to keep themselves holy to the Lord uh, we have a clash between the most religious people of the day and the Son of God himself in perhaps what is one of the most uh, awkward dinners in human history. Jesus gets invited into a Pharisee's house as a guest to share a meal with them, and then Jesus proclaims woes upon his host and the rest of the people there. I mean, it's the kind of meal where you don't know if you should keep on eating or stop and stare. Or you might not even know where to look. And the woes that Jesus does pronounce and the approach that Jesus takes here is, is quite a bit different uh, than that he takes with the tax collector or the most notable sinner uh, whom he beckons simply to come and follow him. Because there's something different about being a religious person and yet still being far from God that is more dangerous and more damning than those who are in more obvious sin. For it is that many can honor God with their lips and still have their hearts far from him, and therefore not feel their perilous position because those lips and those external actions can so easily give a great deal of comfort and a sense of spiritual safety, which Jesus seeks to remove within the interaction of this passage. You know, we can so often uh, think that the greatest danger to our spiritual health uh, perhaps is a changing culture outside of us secularism and this dominating naturalistic worldview, atheistic worldview that can express itself in all the things that we see in society today. Others of us can sometimes think that the greatest danger to our spiritual well-being is, is government overreach in the area of worship, and we can go down the list at what we may think is most harmful and what can cause our faith to falter as forces which are really outside of us. But actually it is that many times... Uh, there are more deadly patterns within the religious sphere and a more pressing danger of that hollow religion. The most serious dangers to the faith might come within those who already know the truth and are religiously active and morally conservative, and yet their hearts are alienated from God, and it is that the most woeful people in our text this morning are really those who do exist in every era and in every age. Uh, whose spirituality and worship, which may have began with the best of intentions, has just become the shell uh, for self-worship. And I think these uh, confrontations and conflicts uh, are recorded for us uh, because we're not invulnerable to these same temptations. It's easy to get caught up in just external uh, religiosity and still be deadened within and then somehow think uh, that we enjoy this reputation for godliness 
rather than the desire uh, for actual godliness. And so this text deals with these very issues. But I want you to notice first uh, how Jesus actually does go into the home of Pharisee, who, who they are not, they're, really, they're not really the biggest fans of Jesus. He accepts the invitation to come over. Verse 37, and we read there. <clears throat> While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. Before we get to the meat of our passage, I want you to notice Jesus' willingness to dine with one who is part of a group of people who, who are not on the same page with Jesus at best and who are murderously antagonistic against Jesus at worst. Jesus still is ready to spend time with those who are not believers. And, and as Jesus' people, we ought to do the same. Now, we often only want to hang out with people that we feel safe with. Uh, comfortable with, that we share the same worldviews and political stances and belief systems with. And I think it's important to note here that Jesus does not do that. Now, Jesus does spend time with prostitutes and tax collectors. I don't think he had been comfortable or approving of their lifestyle choices. You think the holy son of God all of a sudden became numb to abject sin? No. You think the Christ doesn't care about holiness? He absolutely does. He hates sin, but in spending time with sinful people, there was always this purpose in it, for Jesus wanted to call them out of their lifestyles and into new life. And so Jesus frequently spends time with those who are far from God, even when it may be uncomfortable to do just that. And here it is that we see the similar readiness to spend time with those who are far, except this time it's not with those who are guilty of obvious sinfulness. He's spending time with the most religious people in town who are just as far, if not further, than the people that they disapprove of. But if somebody wants to spend time with Jesus, to know more about him and to talk with him, he makes the time to do just that. And I think for uh, many of us here, we can be so protective of ourselves and so protective of our families that we just feel unsafe to spend too much time in a real and intimate way with the people who do not hold fast to the truth. And granted, there is some safety in that. But that's not what Jesus did in his life on earth. He took the time intentionally to mix with unbelievers the ungodly, the sinful ones, to visit them in their homes, to speak to them about the kingdom of God, to understand their lives in a very real way. I mean, brothers and sisters, we are called to be salt and light, to season and to brighten, and it doesn't make any kind of sense to hide out in a country club of sorts trying to ride it out safely until Jesus returns, to kind of seal ourselves off from the rest of the world. Otherwise, why even continue in this life? We might as well just go to heaven now. But there's a commission, a great commission, that Jesus sends his followers on that we might disciple the nations, and discipling the nations necessarily means that we spend time with those who do not know Jesus Christ. This might mean more uncomfortable time with neighbors and friends and unbelieving family members, even if that is not how you are naturally inclined or comfortable with. I think it is that we should often take inventory of who it is, look at our calendars, who it is that I'm spending my time with week to week to week. And if it's only believer, 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 and everyone I only agree with and no one else, then we got to branch out, brothers and sisters. We just have to do that. Now, for others of us here, and I think there may be some here who actually feel more at home and more comfortable and more safe and feel more connection with unbelievers than they do with the church family. I think it would also be just as appropriate to take inventory of those relationships as well. 
Perhaps it is that you do feel more comfortable with unbelievers because you actually do have a lot more in common with them than you do the family of God, that what they live for, what they strive for, what they cheer for and spend their time doing, how they raise their kids, what satisfies them and gives to them joy is strangely the exact same things that do you. When our commonality over the sports teams we watch or raising future athletes and geniuses or whatever it is that brings glory and attention to our own selves, with whatever commonality over these worldly things, when that becomes stronger than the commonality with the family of faith, even with our vast array of differences, I think we have to contemplate why that is. And then I would encourage you all as well to take a step back and see if perhaps this comfort is actually because you are living more like an unbeliever than salt and light in the first place. That's just simply called worldliness. And so we have to, at various times in our life, uh, take inventory of our relationships uh, with those outside the family of God and ask ourselves uh, if they have more of an influence on you than you have upon them, uh, if bringing Jesus to them is even your hope and goal anymore, or if you just quietly live a lot like them, camouflage within, and enjoying that company as is. If that is the case, maybe you do have to withdraw a little bit to get your bearings back. And so Jesus here, he takes great effort, even as a holy son of God, to spend time with those who do not know God, but not merely for enjoyment's sake, but for purpose. And he was the same in the pulpit, so to speak, as he was in homes and at dinner tables. And we see that same boldness as now we get into the meat of our text as Jesus faithfully calls out and rebukes sinful religious living. Look with me at verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within And behold, everything is clean for you. Uh, Here, Jesus is calling out and pointing out this absurdity of this externals-only kind of religion. The kind of spiritual people who on the outside seem that they are so holy, and yet the sin inside of them doesn't seem to bother them at all. God wants our hearts, brothers and sisters. He wants your heart. And not just lip service and going through the motions. But the Pharisees over the years, their religion had become this kind of absurd religion. And Jesus at dinner uses even the plates and the cups in front of him as an object lesson. Can you imagine if you only wash the outside of the cup? The outside of the dish. I mean, think about it. Spaghetti night? Dishes? Sauce? Noodles? And you flip the plate over and just scrub the bottom of it? And then right back on the drying rack? Beef curry? You guys eat beef curry? Think about how crusty that would get. You drink airborne, protein shakes, kids' milk, just rinse the outside, put it right back on the rack, over and over, things will look disgusting and crusty and nasty. It's utterly absurd. And this is Jesus' argument. The Lord has made the outside, yes, but the Lord created the inside as well, the seat of our affections, emotions, motivations, ambitions. Do you think that God is only satisfied with religious paint? And the inside that's hard, uh, far away from them, of course the answer is no. And to think otherwise is, is insane. Now, at this point and 2,000 years later, it's always easy to throw stones at the Pharisees and, and therefore to distance ourselves from them as idiots and imbeciles who couldn't just quite put it together. Hindsight's twenty twenty, But I think it's helpful to realize exactly what a Pharisee was in the first century 
and what they came to represent. The word Pharisee is derived from a term which means to separate. They were the separated ones. Why? Because as the Pharisees, as a group and as a movement, they arose a couple hundred years before Jesus because they wanted to distinguish themselves from the unholiness which had become more and more prevalent around them. They wanted to draw this line of distinction and be separate from that. They were the ones who desired most revival. And they sought it tooth and nail with great effort, with this renewed vigor for spiritual disciplines, holiness, reformation, because they rightly understood that Israel, the people of God, their messed up situation and their horrible condition had been a result of loving sin and wandering far away from Yahweh. And so they sought to obey the law. They wanted to return to the word of God. They believed in the Bible, the authority of it, the fact that it is God's very own breath. And unlike even some so-called Christians today, they believed in heaven and hell, the need for righteousness, a future resurrection, an actual Satan, and so many of the truths that we hold on to today as well. And so they began with the very best of intentions. This was their response to the world around them that had gone horribly astray. We need to return. We need to return to that holiness. Does this kind of heart sound familiar to you at all? I hope it does. There had been this initial purity of passion and zeal, but their problem came not from those noble beginnings and spiritual wisdom of sinfulness really being the root and core of all of God's people's maladies. Their issue came as they began to focus more and more upon the letter of that law rather than the heart of it. All the washings and cleansings, what you wear and how you eat and how you separate yourselves in very distinguishable ways, then sin began to become more defined by these external things to the detriment of the entire purpose of the law. I mean, these cleansings were always to represent what needed to happen inside. And what did Jesus point back to in Luke 10, 26? What is written in the law? How do you read it there? The answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the inside of the cup. That's the inside of the human heart. Do you understand how internalized this is supposed to be? There's there's so many of you parents, I, I got to preach at the retreat five years ago, there's way more kids now. I know you love your children more than you love your own life. And so you care for them, you feed them, you spend all your money on them. But all of that externally is because something's already true internally. But so often it is that people can miss the forest for the trees. And so it began over the years and the decades and the centuries that the Pharisees started to add the word of God as if to somehow make it better in their minds in order to protect that word and to be clean religiously speaking, let's add even more washings and more cleansings and more rules and more laws over the top of what the scriptures say. The Mishnah, which is Jewish tradition. Let me read to you a section of it. This is from Philip Ryken's commentary, who actually quotes R. Kent Hughes. He says, the Mishnah gives a good idea what people like the Pharisees meant when they say, go wash your hands before dinner. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. If you poured the, both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If you poured the first water over the one hand alone, 
and bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed his hand on his head and on the wall, it remains clean. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it, it sounds super intricate. It's not in the Old Testament at all. But this desire for religious outward purity over the years and throughout the centuries, layer upon layer, becomes this animal of its own. And brothers and sisters, it is always easier to deal with the filth on your hands than it is to deal with the filth in your heart. It always is. One takes repentance, the other just takes water. And when the Pharisees came up with more and more rules to stay religiously busy and morally clean and wash like crazy and keep away from the riffraff, all of that is just distracting. It's just busy work from the real sin inside. It's a lot easier to be concerned with the outside and feel some sense of satisfaction of cleaning what is there. Hardened spaghetti is a lot more difficult to deal with than fingerprints on the bottom of the plate. Hardened sin is a lot more difficult to deal with to look at than to look at what's happening on the inside. Bitterness, years of anger, lust, greed, pride. This is way more difficult to come to terms with and face head on. And the path of least resistance, therefore, is to do what is easier in religion. And we can often do the same thing. Come to church, check. Sing our songs, check. Try and stay awake in the sermons, check. Serving children's ministry, check, 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 chickity check. I must be right with God then. And yet our hearts utterly crusted over with sin that has had the compounding effect over the year makes it where we actually don't see the beauty of Jesus, the Son of God, almost at all. As our greatest object of satisfaction and joy, where if we have him, even if we've lost all else, means to have everything. And for our families to prioritize them uh, means everything. But oftentimes we don't even ask ourselves, really, if he means anything to us. Because we can just go through the motions and our external religious busyness can dominate the heart where we rely again on some type of spiritual checklist, which leads paradoxically more and more to wickedness and self-righteousness and pride. I'm doing all this stuff. How come other people aren't doing the same as me? It must be because I'm better than them. Even though we know that deep, deep down, there is still sin within the heart, we do the easier thing of writing with those who also ignore it as well and focus on the external duties alone. Losing sight of the fact that the sum of the law and the prophets is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor even as you love yourself. We can come and easily check mark religion without ever asking ourselves, do I love the Lord in my heart? Do I really love him? Underneath this veneer, this is perhaps the most important question that anyone can ask themselves. Do I really love him and do I really love people? Now, the only reason why this conflict exists with the Son of God in this house of the Pharisee is because they already lost everything already. And the greatest fulfillment of the law and the prophets uh, that the Pharisees were so desperate to protect with their layers and layers and layers. I mean, what human being has ever truly loved the Lord? 
with all heart, mind, soul, and strength, except Jesus. Temptation after temptation, never failing, continuing to choose and love the Lord instead. What person has ever embodied the law and showed forth this purity of life and lived in obedience to the word of God? But Jesus, and who in their entirety of their time upon this earth had genuinely loved his neighbor even as he loved himself? I mean, I don't know anyone who touches lepers. He grabs them. And he's headed to the cross even now to demonstrate his love for us and that love for God at the same time. Who's like that but Jesus? It's not like Jesus lived this life in secret or in a vacuum. Everyone knows how different he is. He had truly been this light on a stand, Luke eleven thirty three, 33, for everyone else to see. The beauty of the law embodied and lived out and demonstrated is sitting literally right across the table from the most religious people of the day, and they have an issue with him because he didn't wash his hands right. How in the world? Now, now this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't wash his hands before his eats. I mean, some of the kids and... Guys here might just want to eat without washing their hands. No, this means that Jesus didn't wash them the way they wanted him to, with the pouring of the cup symbolically to wash away sin on the outside, as if sin could be dealt with on the outside. Don't take this passage to mean that Jesus is unhygienic. Uh, Now, why doesn't Jesus just wash his hands? You trying to reach these people? Just wash your hands. Avoid this weird moment. Be a little bit more sensitive. Have a nice, pleasant dinner. Couldn't he just be courteous and try and meet them where they're at and be compassionate and kind and look the other way and yada, yada, yada? I don't think that would do them any good. The crust is so thick. It's thick enough to need a chisel and a hammer, which is why Jesus raises his voice in verse 40, you fools. He doesn't often call people that. I think only two times in Luke. chose both texts for this retreat. And he points them to the giving of alms from within, from the inside, then everything can be clean because true religion is from the inside out. And God can see our insides just as much as he sees the outside of us. This has always been the case. First Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And brothers and sisters, where are our hearts this morning? Where are they? Are, are, have we come to a place or we just go through the motions. Maybe we've gone through the motions for a while and we don't even ask ourselves if we're going through the motions anymore. Layer upon layer of stuff. Uh, are we just washing the outside? As long as I look fine out there, I'm fine. I'm not doing anything crazily immoral. We've got to ask ourselves honestly, where are our hearts uh, this morning? A heart of worship expressed in outward living. Um, not outward religiousness to cover up the sin within. God, God wants everything. He wants the inside and the out, and then everything. Everything becomes clean, this then out. But Jesus is not done with making the situation awkward. Uh, he actually now begins to enter into a series of specific woes on these Pharisees, his hosts, to expose what's inside of them. Verse 42, let's uh, read together. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. 
This is a harsh condemnation about the Pharisees as a whole. This is a threefold judgment. They have their priorities reversed. They are all about their egos, and they have a contaminating effect upon the people around them. Each woe is really a declaration of both heartbreak and of condemnation. And in this sense, Jesus is reiterating what the prophets of old would declare upon the nation of Israel. Heartbreak and impending doom. Isaiah chapter 5 is a good example of that. And these three specific judgments shows to us three specific characteristics of what happens when religion starts to sour, what it looks like, and what is its end. And so the first one of the Pharisees is about these reverse priorities. They tithe mint, rue, herbs, and they neglect justice and the love of God. When your religion uh, goes bad, you begin to major on the minors, and you start minoring on the majors. You start to get really scrupulous about little things, and you begin to become really blind uh, to bigger things. The Pharisees made sure to split their tithe with this razor-sharp accuracy. It's not like mint has big leaves. And they would take that blade and cut exactly that tenth. They took great effort in measuring these exact amounts of even the smallest of their produce, not an ounce more, not an ounce less, which took painstaking effort and accuracy. They measured on that, and yet justice, helping the widow, the orphaned, those who have been wronged in an era of no social security and welfare, the victims of that current society caring for this kind of people who through no fault of their own is one of the greatest evidences of love for God. Listen to James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this. Don't you want that? Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Does human suffering move you at all anymore? Have we lost sight of the people that Jesus never really lost sight of? Do we see that? Do we even see that? I was driving the car and Brethren was like, should we give the food to the person right there? Our leftovers? I was like, what person right there? And I didn't see it anymore. Something's wrong. Something can get wrong there to be extreme about small things and utterly ambivalent to the big ones is characteristic of heartless religion. We're not talking about social gospel or attacking that as a defense mechanism. We're just talking about really this human heart and pain, this human pain and suffering. I mean, move you at all. Um, now, at some point, some people might want to respond, cool, no more tithes and offerings. I'll just give my food to the person in the corner. Jesus says, say these, uh, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Notice he doesn't say, forget about tithing and just go fight for justice like some want to do today. He says, do both, but don't care about ju- you don't care about justice as much as you care about herbs. Um, which is like throwing a glass of water into their faces. He's saying do both, and I think that's, that's key. There's another kind of sin today that, that really only wants justice and wants to kind of use justice as, as this distraction from the worship of God. Uh, they don't want to fuel worship at all. They, they want to do this, this kind of uh, 
uh, justice that really has nothing to do with God. In this context, the minor worship of giving a precise tithes and herbs seems to matter more than the major worship of helping those who need help the most and more than even their love for God, which is tangibly expressed in that help. Uh, but they're becoming obsessed with the minor things when they should be doing all things. Let me give an example. My son Trent, uh, he's beginning to play basketball. The coach was uh, really good on Parks and Rec. Youngest guy on the team, smallest guy on the court. Uh, the coach has to show him exactly. Trent, when you come over here to play defense, he drew a mark, an X on the court where he needs to be. Run here on defense. And during the game, there's no mark there. This is a real game now. He runs with all his might to get to that spot on defense, and he looks down at his feet to make sure he's exactly there, and he has no idea where the ball is. He's just doing what he stole. And he just sticks his hands up like that, and the ball might come right past his hand. And he doesn't do anything because he doesn't know where the ball is. And it's fine for his age, and he's having a blast. That's not basketball. (laughs) And we can do the same thing with our Christian faith. I'm going to do this. I'm going to stand here. The ball goes right. That's not Christianity. there, There are many faithful givers to every church, praise the Lord, and especially over decades, selfless, faithful, regular, joyful, and at cost, they love the church so much, and God knows this very well, and they give and give, and then we rest there as if we'd done everything. And then we're oblivious still to human needs around us. We literally become blind to them and feel somehow that we fulfilled all love for God and love for neighbor because we wrote a check. That's not Christianity. I mean, brothers and sisters, we have to stand guard. For these Pharisees who care more about cutting a dill seed into tents and totally blind to widows and orphans, that doesn't happen overnight. Reverse priorities, it happens little by little by little. And therefore, the Son of God himself proclaims woes upon the very ones who have missed the point entirely. We must make special effort to nurture our love for God, which will necessarily spill out into our desire uh, and love for others as well. Uh, The second woe is vanity. Uh, This is about egos. This is about self-centered attention. Uh, This is about love for status, which we are drawn to, recognition, applause, all of these things. Uh, This really sours our religion when we become more and more captivated by our own glory than by God's glory. The text says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. If the Pharisees are, are not really loving God, as proclaimed in the first woe, then who it is that they're really loving? but themselves. There's a kind of religion that is for show and and does the things that it does for the admiration and the adoration of the people around us. And in this culture, for a century, the more religious you seem, the better seat you got. Greens in the marketplace, those are these drawn-out conversations as you go from person to person because they're recognizing you for who you are, big man on campus. Now, humanity has a race, a very competitive culture. We're always comparing ourselves to each other and jockeying for position, and it's even a million times worth now with social media. And there is within each of our hearts this craving for attention and recognition that we will be known for something or admired as something. We want to be something else. We want that reputation. And today, a godly reputation uh, might not take you all that far in the current world, but that same competitiveness 
that same vanity, that ego, it's still there nonetheless, who has the nicest ride, the best house, whose children got the best grades and scored the most points. That's my kid right there. And even those who don't want the recognition can still be competitive quietly. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not as vain as those people over there. I hope people notice how unlike I am from them. And we can gain this feeling of self-importance because of some promotion, some distinguishment, some accomplishment, some progress, and then we glory when we are the envy of someone else. That's just how the world works. Within the Christian sphere, we see it expressed in all these weird ways. You meet someone for the first time, and they announce to you their entire spiritual resume, boast about their spiritual disciplines, and how to make sure everybody knows how they serve, and for so long, I just met you. Or on the other end, oh, I'm not like those uptight Christians. I'm like this instead. I'm more kind and liberal and blah, 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 blah. I mean, brothers, this is disgusting. We cannot live for the glory of Christ and for the glory of self at the same time. We can't. Make no mistake about it. We will be full of them or we will be full of ourselves. There really is no middle ground. We cannot be obsessed with the reflection in the mirror and then slap our chest and point to the one above. Sorry for certain fans of a certain player. Whose prestige are we really most concerned about? His or ours? You know, one quick way to know this quickly is how bold you are for Jesus in the church and see if you're less bold for Jesus in the world. If that's the case, you know something's fake. In the world, I'm going to be like the world for show. And in the church, I act like the church for show. And something's wrong. And we know that our spirituality is, is, is turning rotten. One commentator says this, they want applause and popularity, not God. They want to be worshipped, not offer worship. They think little of God, but much of themselves. It is possible to use religion for popularity and privilege, that is, the Pharisees. And so the second woe is really about vanity, that ego, that love of status, and especially here, religious people who even use their religion for one's upsmanship. God desires a humility that is him-centered over me-centered. The third woe is this contaminating effect that the Pharisees have upon the people around them. Um, when When our religion sours, when it goes rotten, when it goes wrong, it it actually spreads. It's contagious. Woe to you, Jesus says, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Under the old covenant, you come close to a grave, a corpse. You're ceremonially unclean. You can't go to worship. And that's why they mark the graves very clearly, so you know what you're getting near to. Jesus here, this is a jugular shot against the Pharisees now. You guys are unmarked graves, which means that the religious leaders actually make others unclean, and they don't even know it. They're hollow religion. They're self-centeredness. They're majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. It actually spreads to the people around them, and people who follow them don't even know that it's happening. They're just getting worse and worse by being around these people. Brothers and sisters, when we have lost our heart for God, when we use religious makeup, that hollowness of false faith, that vanity of self-centered religion, it actually spreads with this contagion. Phariseeism spreads to those to the left and to the right of us. Hollow and superficial faith spreads to our children, and we might not know it. They might not know it either. 
that they might be more concerned with their glory and their achievements than the glory of Jesus Christ. Egocentric, vain vanity spreads, checkmark religion spreads and contaminates. And at this point of the text, with these woes laid out before us, I didn't choose this text because I think Pillar Baptist is full of Pharisees. I don't think that's the case. I chose this text because Phariseeism can be within each of us. The ones who are not Pharisees will not take the time to diagnose and try to root any of it out. It's time for self-examination. That's what retreats are often used for, to get away from our regular life so we can get a clearer picture of what's going on. Uh, Listen to J.C. Ryle. Let me counsel every true servant of Christ to examine his own heart frequently and carefully before God. This is a practice which is useful at all times. It is especially desirable at this present day. When the great plague of London was at its height, people took note of the smallest symptoms that appeared on their bodies in a way that they never noticed them before. A spot here, a spot there, which in time of health, men thought nothing of. Received close attention when the plague was decimating families and striking down one after another. We ought to watch our hearts with double watchfulness. We ought to give more time to meditation, self-examination, and reflection. It is a hurrying and bustling age. If we would keep from falling, we must take time for being frequently alone with God. You know, we didn't live during the plague, but I don't know if you remember back to the very beginnings of COVID when we didn't know about the nature of the illness. Many thought it was a death sentence. The slightest sniffle, (gasps) a headache. Fatigue, runny nose. Oh, man, I should get a test. Make sure this doesn't spread. Got them plastic gloves and the spray. Shh. And that's what these woes are supposed to function like, a, a test. Is there hypocrisy, any of it? Are my priorities upside down? Is my religion only on the outside? Am I majoring in the minors? Be afraid of that stuff. Am I vain? Do I care about what people think about me more than I care about anything else? Am I worried about my reputation, where I I stand competitively with the people around me? Do I love greetings and recognition, likes on social media? Am I an unmarked and hypocritical grave that actually spreads hollow religion to the people around me? You know, parents, what am I raising my children to become? Consumed with, intoxicated by self-glory, wealth, or self-denial. They need to learn how to take up a self-denying cross. Where are they going to learn that from? But mom and dad, you can't win the rat race carrying a heavy cross. You just can't do it. What are you trying to win? What are we trying to carry? These are our symptoms. This is way worse than COVID. This is way worse than the bubonic plague. Our bodies are perishing. Our souls will rise to something else. And so these woes function like a test so that we will not spiritually die. That what may have began with good beginnings will not turn and sour and become very costly in the end. This hypocrisy will be fought rather than accepted tooth and nail. That repentance and confession and restoration and reconciliation might be our mainstays. If you're a believer this morning, use these passages like checklists for symptoms, and perhaps they might awaken you for something that could turn eternally deadly. Uh, This is Ligon Duncan. This is a good ending question, I think, for us to think about. What do you think Jesus might say if he came to dinner at your house?
how do you think that meal is going to go? You know, if you're not a believer, maybe you're a new believer, and you're wondering why you signed up for this retreat to hear about woe is upon a religious group of people from 2,000 years ago. That's not what you're hoping for. Uh, if there's anything you get from this morning, it's this. The human heart, it can be desperately untrustworthy. It's wicked. It tricks us into thinking we're something when we're not. And that people, we as people, we can take the best things like religion and turn them into altars of self-idolatry. It's the human condition that's bent towards sin. The inside is crusty and evil. This is why we can never earn salvation, brothers and sisters. Christianity is not, well, I heard that, and I'm going to do this and that and go to church and read my Bible and wash the outside. This text obviously shows to us it's not. No one can earn salvation. Who can love a people who can turn religion into something like this? And we find our Savior at the dinner table with people like this. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that God can love people like this, that he sends Jesus Christ to people like this, which is why we need a perfect Savior, which is why we want to love this perfect Savior with all of our heart from the inside out. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, your, your word is searching. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts us deep, and, and I pray that by your spirit it would. I pray that... Uh, you wouldn't let us find rest if, if we're uh, straying from you. I pray that even at night you'd haunt us and beckon us back to you. Don't, don't let us find comfort when we're walking the wrong way. I pray, Lord, that you use this uh, text, you use your word in our lives in a very substantial way, that you would bring us back to the main thing, that you would open our hearts before you. I pray, Lord, that you would make us lovers of you. By, by your sovereign grace, that you would bring us near to you, that you might be everything to us. And I pray, God, for, for this church family, that you would uh, bless them and bring them near to you and near to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.